Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people... We must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. 
Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, you will have seen from the tone card, we're in, we're in Acts 4 and 5 this evening, um, but we only read four, obviously. Um, but do have them both open because we're going to kind of try and cover roughly uh, the whole story um, of those two chapters. They present a, a similar picture. Um, later on, you may want to read through 5, 17 to 42, just to fill in the details of that. Well, I've got bad news, and I've got good news. And the bad news is this. The church on mission will always be opposed. Whether it's just mockery, like in Acts chapter 2, whether it's prison and trial, as in these two chapters here, whether it's even death, uh, as comes to Stephen in chapter 7, opposition always comes. It's not constant. We're not in a constant state of being opposed. Before these chapters, the the church had great favor with the people, enjoyed a time of great peace. But it will come eventually. And so if we're going to remain on mission as a church, we need to be ready for opposition. But this is the good news. The church on mission can never be stopped. However fierce the opposition gets, it will never end the church, nor halt its mission. And we're going to look at Acts 4 and 5 to see this in action. When we launch into Acts chapter 4, we're coming in just as Peter is finishing his sermon. The healing of the crippled man Uh, in Acts chapter 3, and his subsequent sermon and explanation of what has been going on in that has obviously attracted a huge crowd of people, Um, but it's also attracted the attention of the religious authorities. The priests and the captain of the temple guards come up, and they are so disturbed by what they hear, so disturbed by what Peter and John are saying, that they lock them up for the night to put on trial the next day. And the first serious opposition to the church in Acts has begun. But what what is at the root of this opposition? What, What causes them to act in this way? Why are they so disturbed? I mean, there's a whole crowd of people around who are delighted by what they're seeing, delighted by what they're hearing. Why are these people so opposed to what is being said. And I think the reason is this. They're disturbed because Jesus is a threat to them. And actually, at the root of all opposition to the church, ultimately, is that fact. Jesus threatens people. Now, that can, that can seem strange to us if we've been Christians for a while because 
probably Jesus seems anything but threatening to us. I mean, he's, he's great. You know, what? But, but clearly, these religious leaders, like, like many others, when they hear of what has happened, when they hear the witness to Jesus in the gospel, they realize he's a threat. And he threatens these people in two particular ways. Firstly, he, he threatens their understanding of the world. Luke tells us in his gospel that the Sadducees that we meet here say there is no resurrection. That was one of the fundamental uh, parts of what they believed. They were, they were part of the Jewish faith, and yet they believed there was no resurrection. And here they have in front of them Peter and John, not only proclaiming that there is a resurrection generally, but that it has already started, that that God has already raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And not only are they saying that, but they have a guy standing next to them who was crippled for more than 40 years and has clearly been miraculously healed because of the name of Jesus. And so right in front of their eyes and coming into their ears is something that will destroy their understanding of how the world works. Did you see, they they can't deny the miracle. They said in verse 16, everybody knows that they've done an outstanding miracle. We cannot deny it. We We can't cover that bit up. But... The resurrection of Jesus, well, that's the thing that they're going to have to silence. In fact, they, they, they're so disturbed even by the name of Jesus, they won't even say it. Verse 17, speak no longer in this name. Can't even bring themselves to say Jesus. You see, what, what the resurrection of Jesus shows us and shows them is that God is there and he's willing to get involved in the world. But we like to think that, that we're in control. We like to think that, that life is predictable and manageable and, and we can run it fairly well on our own. We, God is there, fine, thank you very much, but don't get involved. And even these religious leaders who... who were fine with the miracle almost. They they couldn't deny that. They acknowledged a miracle had happened, but the idea that God might get involved and start interfering in their world, well, they didn't like that very much. See, God has raised Jesus from the dead, and so their, their beautifully manicured lawn of life suddenly has a whacking great oak tree in the middle of it, And so what do they do? Well, they think, well, let's cut the tree down. But before we too quickly think of all those people out there who are living like this, let's ask ourselves, do do we have that that same desire just to to be in control, to, to manage our lives, that same hope that while God is there, let's hope he doesn't get too involved? When we come to church in the evening, are we hoping it will be nicely delivered and arranged and sorted and we can come and we'll know everything that's going to happen and then we can go home afterwards 
and get on with our week. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a, a preacher in London in the last century, never preached on the radio. Um, and he was asked why. He was a, he was a great preacher. And he, why don't you preach on the radio? And he asked one of the directors of all the religious programming for a certain radio station, he said, well, what would happen if in one of your programs the Holy Spirit took over? And the guy said, well, I, I don't really know. See, he, he wouldn't preach on the radio because of this possibility that in the midst of a, of a carefully managed and controlled world, God might suddenly do something. The resurrection of Jesus is a threat to the world of these Sadducees because it's the dawn of a new world. He threatens our understanding of how life works. But the second threat that Jesus brings uh, is to their power. You see their, their initial reaction in 4 verse 2, they're greatly disturbed or annoyed. They, they don't like what's going on. But then if you flick forward to chapter 5, verse 17, the church has been carrying on with its work, and they're filled with jealousy. And then after their conversation, well, trial again of Peter and John and the other apostles, in verse 33, they're furious and want to put them to death. See, we we trace their reaction and realize their power is seriously under threat. Their their influence, they're jealous of the church. it's, It's growing and it's influencing people, and more and more people are coming to listen to the apostles, and, and these guys who've been in charge and who are in charge of all the religious life are suddenly jealous because all their influence is shrinking. That People are, are having their lives transformed, and they cannot stand it. They hate it. It's sobering to think, isn't it? These are the religious leaders These are the people who are meant to to know God. These are the people who are meant to be drawing others to know God. And they see God's kingdom growing, and they're the ones who are most against it. They should love this. But what they really love, what they really love is their own kingdom, their own little sphere of influence. See, they would rather be in control of of a lifeless kingdom than to be servants in the kingdom of Jesus. Sadly, this this is a pattern that gets repeated. In his book, Christian Leaders of the 18th Century, J.C. Ryle wrote of how Church of England clergy reacted to George Whitfield, who himself was a Church of England clergyman. He had been preaching not only in his own local area, but he started preaching around the country, crossing parish boundaries. J.C. Ryle says this, The clergy, with a few honorable exceptions, refused entirely to countenance Whitfield. In the true spirit of the dog in the manger, they neither liked to go after the semi-heathen masses of population themselves, nor liked anyone else to do the work for them. 
religious leaders who, who, would, who would prefer to manage their own little dying kingdom than see anyone else come in and bring life. See, the church, when it's on mission, threatens people's power. It threatens religious power. Later on in Acts, we see it threatens governmental power. It threatens civic power. And we see the reason for this in chapter 5, verse 29. It was in uh, 4 as well, 4 verse 19. But in 5 verse 29, Peter and the apostles reply, we must obey God rather than men. That's their first loyalty. Not to, not to the established power of the religious authorities, not to the power of the government necessarily, if God has called them to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is what they must do. And the people who are in power will use their power to keep their power. Here it means trial and prison, and then at the end of chapter 5, a severe beating for the apostles, but eventually it costs them their lives because Jesus threatens the power. Are we ready? Are we ready to count the cost of what it really means to be the church on mission? Well, that's the bad news, but the good news is that the church on mission cannot be stopped. And that is what governs the apostles' response to this opposition. Let's look first at the uh, end of uh, the bit from chapter 4 we were reading, um, verses 24 to 30. And look at their prayer. Look at the things that they pray in response to opposition. Verse 24, Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. See where they start? They start from a point where, where God is the unchallenged ruler of everything. He, he's created everything. They've just left a serious trial with serious threats, and they come and say, God, you're in charge. You rule. They continue, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand against, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So, so they acknowledge God rules everything, and then, the, then they quote Psalm 2 here, and they say that the rage of the Romans and the Jewish leaders and the people of Israel against Jesus that led to his crucifixion, well, that's what David was talking about centuries ago. That God, God wasn't surprised, and he wasn't surprised by the opposition that the church was suddenly facing. This was not news to God because he's already talked about it through David in Psalm 2. But there's even more than that. Verse 28. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God didn't just know about the opposition. It was everything that happened was subject to his power and will. That is a remarkable thing for people who've just been threatened and threatened with death or beatings to, to come out and say, God, you knew all this was going to happen and it's all subject to your power and will. 
And so, with all that background, what do they ask God to do? Verse 29, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Exactly, in fact, what they've been told not to do by the authorities. They ask God for the power to do that. They don't say, wow, Lord, that was, that was really unpleasant. Please put an end to their threats. Or, actually, Lord, you know, a couple of weeks ago when we had favor with all the people, that was lovely. Please, more peace and protection. No. No, you see, see God is unchallenged in his rule, and therefore, this opposition that they're facing isn't a problem for God. Nothing can be done to thwart his purposes of seeing Jesus witness to to the ends of the earth. And they know, therefore, that, that because God is in control, because God is ruling in the heavens, he will give his servants everything they need to do what he's called them to do. Enable your servants to speak your words with great boldness. They're, they're secure in the face of this opposition. Because God is unchallenged in his rule over the world. So their first response is to pray to a sovereign God. If we turn to the end of chapter 5, we'll see the second part of their response, the final couple of verses, verse 41 uh, of chapter 5. They've just had a, another trial. They've this time been beaten uh, and released. And they respond in this way. They left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Rejoicing in suffering. That is the response of the church on mission. Why were they rejoicing? Because they'd been counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. Now, it can't be the religious authorities who thought they were worthy of suffering and therefore beat them up. No, it's, it's God. God considered them worthy of suffering for his sake. They didn't go seeking it. This is not a call to go and find someone who's going to punch you in the face for saying Jesus is raised from the dead. That's not what we're looking for. It's just a byproduct of going out and saying Jesus has been raised from the dead. That's why it happens. And God, God granted them the privilege of suffering for his name. And that's not something just for the apostles. Paul wrote to the Philippians, it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ, not only that you believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you. This is part of what it is to be a Christian, part of what it is to be the church on mission. We need this ability to rejoice in suffering if we're going to carry out our mission. Uh, my brother's a, a missionary in Pakistan. He's written this little book on mission, risk, and suffering. Um, I doubt he gets any money for it, so if you want to buy a copy. Uh, I don't have any, but I'm sure you can find one on the internet. But, but he says this. 
He says, without a theology of risk and suffering in Christian discipleship, we will be incapable of responding meaningfully to the broken world which lies beyond our church doors. We, we need to, to have a, a, a theology, an understanding of the world, an understanding of God, an understanding of what he's doing that, that enables rejoicing in suffering. Because the church on mission will be opposed. But the church on mission can never be stopped. So do we have that? Can we, can we incorporate this into our understanding of Jesus Christ and the Christian life, of rejoicing in suffering? Not, not just enduring it, but somehow, by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who knows, rejoicing in it. They didn't like it. I don't think they got beaten and thought, wow, this is great. They didn't, but they rejoiced in it. And they could do that because first they knew that God was sovereign. He ruled over all things for, for their good, the good of those who love him and accord according to his purpose. God works all things according to the good. And therefore, therefore, even this, even this is for God's glory and their good. They could get that. Opposition will come. Because Jesus is a threat to people. He threatens how they understand the world. He threatens their power. But in that, the church on mission can never be stopped because God is in charge and he will carry his purposes out. I'm going to close with a quote from Ernst Kaiserman, who was a German pastor. And in 1937, he was under great pressure from the Nazi government and he preached this sermon which led to his arrest. And he finished it in this way. And this, this is just a, this is the voice of a, of a man who is, is in this situation, uh, being opposed and yet knowing that the mission of the church can never be stopped. He said, blessed be our enemies. Th- think about who's, to, blessed be our enemies. For they teach us with all their bluster, even better to know what right faith, true peace and eternal joy are. We do not want to change places with them. Whatever they want to have, to plan and to do. Other lords beside you rule over us. Certainly we know it and discern it afresh every day. But they hold rule over what is merely dust of the earth. And they themselves clearly know that. And the knowledge makes them furious. Nevertheless, we confess in joy and thanks the eternal Lord, and we declare with the whole Christian family, we call upon you alone and on your name. May God give us grace to have that same spirit so that whenever opposition comes, we can have confidence in our God that his purposes will be completed for the whole earth. Amen.